One of the phrases that we've all become familiar with is peer pressure. We've always had peers and we've always had pressure, but in the last few decades, we've become more acutely aware of the influence that those two have on each other. One of the concerns on the hearts and minds of just about every parent I talk to is how best to guide our sons and daughters through the adolescent years of doubt and uncertainty so that they are able to make good independent decisions and not sink into complete conformity to the peer group. And what we're observing uh, in the last 40 years or so is that peer pressure is not just a teenage problem, but an adult problem as well. We face pressure to own or to buy certain products. We face pressure to act in certain ways in the workplace or at school, uh, to wear certain brand name clothing, to sometimes even participate in certain activities for no other reason than everyone else seems to be doing it. One of my favorite stories about peer pressure is the tale of two, uh, four United Methodist pastors who were riding home together from a conference. And the preacher at this conference had stressed the great need for confession in the modern church. And one pastor decided that the four should put what they learned into practice. And so he suggested that they all confess any secret sins in their life. The first one said, I must confess that my sin is greed. My church pays me well, but I take a lot of side jobs because it, I make some extra money and I just like buying stuff, even stuff I don't need. They glanced at the second pastor and she, feeling the pressure to confess, said, okay, okay, my sin is gambling. I enjoy sneaking over to the Catholic church to play bingo. The third, a man sensing the pressure among his peers to come clean said, my big sin, I enjoy looking at beautiful women. I know it's wrong, I shouldn't allow myself to have impure thoughts, but I just can't help myself. And as the three finished divulging their secret sins, they noticed the silence of the fourth member in the back seat of the car and hoping to pressure him into a confession, they all said, what about you, Joe? What's your big sin? Well, Joe said, I might as well tell you, my sin is gossiping and I can't wait till we get home. A number of years ago, um, a psychologist by the name of Ruth Berenda performed some interesting experiments with teenagers. The plan was simple. She brought in groups of 10 teenagers at a time. The group was shown a card with three lines of varying lengths on it. The group was then asked to vote by the raising of their hand on which line was at line A, B, or C that was the longest of the three lines. Now, nine members of the group were told privately to vote for the second longest line as if it were the longest and do it with absolute certainty. And the 10th team, a teen who was the uninformed guinea pig in this experiment of peer pressure and conformity didn't know a thing about that. So inevitably, time after time, the 10th uninformed teen would observe how the other nine were voting and raise his hand to go along with the group vote, while knowing that the line was obviously not the longest line. And Dr. Berenda concluded that the average person would rather conform to peer opinion than have the courage to be right and stand alone. It's one thing for peer pressure to be examined in the classroom and under the watchful eye of a psychologist. It's quite another thing when your child or my child is surrounded by a majority who's saying 
that the next to the longest line is the longest. And see, the scary thing in that is that the issues that our kids are facing today are not likely to be as harmless as measuring lines on a card. The moral and ethical implications are frightening. How can we help our children climb out of the canyon of conformity so that they will be able to handle peer pressure and to stand alone if necessary and to stand tall when times of testing inevitably come? How can a child or a teen or an adult find the inner strength and the courage to stand up in their environment and say, enough is enough. I will not participate in what's going on here, even if it costs me my popularity or my job. In the Old Testament book of Judges, in this ancient world that we sometimes think is so disconnected from our modern world, there is a story of peer pressure along with some guidance about how we get out of the sinking canyon of conformity. In the book of Judges, there's a story of the time in Israel's early history when they finally moved into the promised land, the land of Canaan. But all the well-known leaders had passed on. Moses, had, who had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Joshua, who had been the strong military leader during the conquest and the battle period, were both gone. They had died. The 12 tribes of Israel lived together in this loosely connected federation throughout the land of Palestine. They were totally surrounded by Canaanites. God had given explicit instructions to Moses and to all of Israel not to conform to the ways of the Canaanites for some very good reasons, which we'll touch on in a moment. So at first they stood tall, but over the course of time they began to relax their standards and to compromise their integrity. The pressure to drift away from God and to take on the ways of these pagan Canaanites was always there, pushing them, prodding them, inviting them day after day. Sometimes we wonder, I think, why God puts us in situations where the crowd is pressuring us and we feel that pressure around us wouldn't it be easier for a Christ follower if that pressure was simply taken away from us? What's God trying to do to us? In Judges chapter 3, verse 4, we find a very interesting verse that addresses this question. God allowed the Israelites to remain hemmed in on all sides for a purpose. And here's what he says. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. God had given Moses and Joshua specific commands that the Israelites were to be distinct and separate from the other Canaanite peoples who worshiped many gods. And at first there had been an effort to preserve the law of the Lord, but the truth is that shortly after Moses and Joshua disappeared from the scene, the Israelites began to compromise Somehow they had not learned how to stand alone when surrounded by peer pressure and they began to conform to the ways of living that were not of God. So let's go back to the book of Judges and the early chapter, chapter 1, and read these words. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go to, uh, first to attack the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. The men of Judah said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon, join with us to fight the Can against the Canaanites living in the territory allotted to us, and they will then help 
we will, then we will help you conquer your territory. So the men of Simeon went with Judah. Now the words Judah and Simeon refer to whole tribes, whole clans of people, not just to two individuals. The tribe of Judah lived in one district, Simeon in another, and the same for the other 10 tribes of Israel. The first factor having to do with conformity and peer pressure in this chapter is that each tribe felt alone and uncertain. The Israelites felt just the way that we often feel. You know that feeling you have on that first day on the job in a new place? When you're all alone that first week on a new campus? You're that new recruit, first day in boot camp? See, their leaders were dead. They felt alone. They didn't know what direction to go in. That's often the way our kids feel, isn't it? They can't always admit it, don't necessarily want a parent around, but there's a sense of uncertainty and insecurity and aloneness in a new situation. The insecure will have a tendency to go with what the majority is doing and if it helps them to avoid isolation. How many times have you felt that you were the only one not doing something? Your instincts told you not to conform, but because you felt alone and isolated, you decided not to make waves. Let's look at a second factor. The generation of combat-ready men and women who had sat at the feet of Moses and Joshua were now also gone. Judges 2, verse 10, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. Those veterans who had been involved in the victories, who had seen the Lord topple the walls of Jericho with the trumpet blast, were all dead and gone. In their place was this whole new generation who didn't know God or what the Lord had done previously to secure their liberty and establish them in the land. You see, something massive is lost when a nation loses its historical and spiritual heritage. We can never forget the importance of teaching and modeling the faith for our children. Don't assume that because you bring your kids to church on Sunday that they will naturally pick up your faith. Moses had instructed an earlier generation to talk about their faith in the Lord with their children in the morning and at mealtime and in evening and at bedtime. In short, it was always an appropriate conversation. It can't just be something we do. It must be who we are. I'll never forget the story told by a pastor about his aging father. His mother died, the father moved in with the family, and late one evening, this 40-some-year-old pastor slipped into his father's room. He had been troubled by the fact that his father never really talked much about his relationship to Christ. So the son came, uh, just came out and asked him, he said, Dad, do you know Jesus? And the father started into a story that began in his childhood, and he talked about this spiritual pilgrimage through the years, and he told of the difficult times, and he told about the times of success, and they had a great time that night, and the son gained some fresh insight and courage to be stronger in his own life because of the faith that he now understood in his father's witness. So let me just say a word to all the dads and maybe grandpas here today as well. You of all people need to verbalize what God means to you. 
and what Jesus has done in your life to your family. Why? Because as guys, we don't do that very well. Why is it that you are part of the church? How does your faith impact your decision-making and your work? Make it a conversation that's as natural as talking about your favorite baseball team. You see, your kids need to hear from you, and it will cause them to be stronger in their own life. Otherwise, a whole generation may grow up not knowing God or what God has done and have no inner strength when the peer pressure closes in. There's a third factor that must not be overlooked. Judges chapter 3 tells us that they were surrounded and outnumbered. Listen to this. These are the nations. The Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon to uh, Labahamoth, these people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters. The Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. Now, it's hard to understand for us all these ites in the Scripture, but the Canaanites, you need to know, were a people who were fierce, they were cruel, they were tough-minded fighters, and the most common religion in ancient Palestine was the worship of fertility gods, personified by the god Baal. Temples were actually staffed with prostitutes, and to worship Baal was to have a sexual relationship with one of the male or female prostitutes in the temple. One archaeologist has discovered that this sexual-based idolatry that existed among the Canaanites led to a debasing kind of lifestyle that was characterized by massive social disease that often devastated whole communities and whole populations. Now, you can begin to understand the grasp of God's command to Israel to stand tall against evil and to be distinct from the Canaanites. It has to be interpreted in light of religious and moral and even health reasons, along with others. Judges records three reactions of the Israelites to God's command to be strong and not conform to the pressure of what everybody else was doing around them. And we don't have time to look up the specific references, but let me sum up their reactions in three statements. First, they did not obey the Lord's command to be separate and distinct. It might have started out harmless enough. Perhaps there was some trading of merchant goods, exchanging of customs. But soon this intermingling began to snowball with some devastating effects. The second thing that happened was a loss of spiritual distinctiveness. They soon slipped into the worship of Baal, the fertility god of Canaan. Temple prostitutes replaced the temple of or the worship of God in the synagogue. And then the final result of this snowball effect was giving in to the pressure around them and taking on of the sexually degrading religion. And when they did that, marriages began to break up. The sanctity of the marriage relationship was violated and men and women were running after new partners and homes began to break up and were destroyed. Peer pressure in itself is not evil. It can be a powerful influence for good. But when we yield to pressure, when our conscience says otherwise, or when we know 
that it is not the will of God, peer pressure can quickly snowball and have devastating effects on us and on our family and on our whole society. So how can we climb out of the canyon of conformity when it seems like everyone else is doing it? How can you and I stand up for what we believe is right when the pressure of the crowd is pushing in the opposite direction? Parents, how can you pass on tough-minded faith to your kids that won't blow them away when they land on the university campus? Let me suggest just three encouragements. First, climbing high involves the way we think. There's a mental factor of excellence here that involves the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves and others. It involves how we think about our business, our dating, our marriages, about how this whole world system is designed to pull us down and lower our standards. And when we think about the times we're confronted with sexual pressure or the pressure to be like the crowd, to take that drink or to try the drug, it's important to remember that we need to make that decision to stand strong and not give in long before that moment of passion or that temptation is at hand. The same is true in every walk of life. Decide now how you will handle unethical policies that you encounter at work, how godly principles will guide your behavior before the situation arises. Secondly, climbing out of the canyon calls for strong discipline. This has to do with our will. We must keep moral checks on our hands, our feet, our tongues, even when our feelings don't agree. We can discipline our will. We can't discipline our emotions. So build some strong accountability into your life. Make yourself reportable to a group of small friends or someone who will keep track of you. And I believe that if there is no Christian friend to whom you are accountable, who knows you, who knows your strengths and weaknesses, and will be honest with you, you're in great danger of waffling when the time comes. Third, climbing out of the canyon of conformity may also limit your choices of who your close personal friends are. Cultivating wrong friendships can be lethal to you. This is what happened to the Israelites during the period of the judges. In Proverbs, there's a verse that says in effect, make no mistake about it, bad company ruins good character. It is possible to stand tall. It is possible to be courageous, to climb out of the, above the crowd and above what everybody else is doing and above the pressure to be like everyone else. One of the most powerful stories, and I close with this, that I maybe have ever read, involved a little Asian hermit by the name of Telemachus, who lived in the fourth century AD. Telemachus was living in this remote village when one day, after spending much time in prayer, he felt God was asking him to go to Rome, the capital of the empire, the center of culture. He obeyed not knowing the mission. He took weeks of weary walking, but he finally arrived. And this little monk one day followed the festival crowd into the Colosseum, where two gladiators were about to fight it out to the death for the entertainment of the bloodthirsty crowd. And when he realized what was happening, he jumped over the rail and onto the field, crying out, in the name of Christ, stop. At first, the crowd laughed at the sight of this small little man running across the field, shouting, in the name of Christ, stop. 
And, but soon their laughter turned to anger. And as he reached the gladiators, he pleaded with them to stop. And one of the fighters turned and plunged his sword into Telemachus' chest. And as this monk dropped to his knees before the hushed crowd, he said it again, in the name of Christ, stop. Strange thing happened that day. In the hushed silence, a few people got up and made their way to the exit. And others began to follow. And in dead silence, the Colosseum emptied. The year was 391 A.D. Never again did gladiators fight for the entertainment of the crowd in that Colosseum. All because one tiny voice stood up for the truth in God's name. See, standing tall against peer pressure and conformity takes courage. It takes strong discipline, takes high standards. And you may take some heat, but you will ultimately make a difference. And you can do it in the name of Christ. Let's pray. God, on this weekend, we pray not only for our graduates, <clears throat> but we lift up every person in this congregation before you. During this season of new beginnings, we ask that you would make our way and your will clear to us. We ask that you would keep our footsteps firm and remind us that you are with us always. May we sense the freshness of your spirit over our lives in amazing ways. May we be strengthened and instilled with hope for the new roads that you have in store for us in the future. We pray for your protection, for your covering, that you would surround each of our lives with a shield, protect our coming and our going, and help us to live aware in this dark world and keep harm and evil far away from us. We ask that you would hide us in the safety of your powerful presence. God, give us courage to stand tall for you when we are tempted to just fit in with the culture of this world and help us to be people of faith who make a difference. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.